Hello, I'm Amy Day. You're listening to Mend, Life at the Seams. This is where we meet inside the broken places. That intersection of what is lacking and what we have to give. Inside this space, we gather with ordinary people, parents, poets, permaculturists, pot farmers, travelers, teachers, technopreneurs, artists, and activists. People from all walks of life who are taking root at the margins, who are daring to do the brave and audacious work of mending what is broken in this world. Those who have chosen to step into the gap, so to speak, to leverage whatever skills and vision they possess to chart a new way forward for the betterment of us all. And those who are calling us to do the same. This might just be your clarion call to take the thread that you carry, the one that's a piece of a much larger tapestry and to weave a different story than the one you've been handed. So welcome to MEND. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Happy Tuesday, if you're tuning in at the time that this episode is going live. Um, It had been my intention to get this lovely conversation out to all of you a solid week ago, and then birthdays, as in like many, many birthdays (laughs) here in our family and locally happened, and colds happened, and I sounded like a frog for a solid week, and I keep waiting for that magical moment when life is going to slow down. And everyone's going to be well, and there's not going to be any major catastrophes or minor ones happening, and it'll all be smooth sailing, and then I can, you know, publish this episode in the time that I have designated it. And I just, I'm coming to the realization, I don't think that mythical time exists inside this moment of life we're having. Um, So I get to choose to slow down and rest and pause and sometimes do things a little bit later than I had planned um, and sometimes do it with the frog voice. So thank you all for being here again a week later than I'd planned, but um, here we are nonetheless. Um, I am super delighted to bring you this talk. This may end up being, in fact, one of the last interviews that I do for this show for a while. I've been just gestating on taking the show in a couple different directions and playing with the format and just seeing what feels, you know, alive and most resonant with me and what wants to come forth right now. So this may be one of the last interviews we do just for a little while. Um, A while back ago, you may remember, I got the pleasure of sitting down and speaking to my good friend, poet and mother and author, Therese Fitzmorris who is one half of the Spoken Word Collective, A Reason to Listen, which is a grassroots, humble, grown poetry collective. This month, I had this great, great pleasure of sitting down with the other half of this force for good in the universe, Miss Vanessa Vitriak. Vanessa is a poet, social worker, and activist. She has self-published five books of poetry, and as I said, is the co-founder of A Reason to Listen. She holds an MA in public sociology, and her thesis is titled Reintegration in a Rural Community, Strengths, Barriers, and Recommendations for Reentry in Humboldt County. In the weeks to come, Vanessa will be directing a play here locally on the North Coast. This is her sixth one total, penned by the prodigious Eve Ensler, and this one is entitled Any One of Us, Words from Women in Prison. This plays a collection of stories from formerly and currently incarcerated women from across the nation. And the aim of these stories is towards healing, understanding, and change with the goal of using this writing and these voices to impact policy, laws, and treatment of incarcerated women. Together, these writings reveal the deep connection between women in prison and the violence that often brings them there. I sat down to speak with both Vanessa and also the lovely and articulate Katerina Kine, who has a background in criminal justice and works as part of the philanthropy program at St. Joseph's Hospital in Eureka. And she is also one of the actors for this production. Together, we spent about an hour talking about the systemic issues women face both in and outside the system. We talked about the cultural biases and hurdles that they face when they go to re-enter society. 
And perhaps most importantly, what I always love to come back to is what we can do, right? The you and the me inside our small daily actions, both to shine a light, but also begin to shift the landscape inside this portion of the world. We talked about a bridge between art and action and overcoming and dismantling the narratives that we've inherited and creating new ones, not only for ourselves, but for those who have been caught inside, penalized, and degraded by a system whose aim on paper is said to be that of rehabilitation, but in actuality, as we know, can often be anything but. I urge you to sit with these wise women, to take a moment to invite their stories to land inside your heart. I want to invite you to carve out an evening to go see this play and to sit inside the brave space that they have created for us all to collectively share for the night. I believe it's inside these spaces that we glimpse what is possible. It's inside these moments that we catch a spark of what can be. We open ourselves to new possibilities. We allow ourselves to be broken open so that something new can be born. I want to thank these two powerful women for sitting and talking with me for an hour and for the wonderful work that they're doing in our local world. May their words inspire and hearten you. May they do what art does best, right? Which is create a catalyst for change, first inside your own head and heart that fans out from there into the larger waking world. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to the things that we talk about inside the show and for the ways that you can contribute, watch, and participate inside this event. As always, um, please just take a moment to leave a review and rating to spread the word a bit further about the work of this podcast and just to share a little bit about whatever gifts and insights you've received herein. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being part of the story. And again, as always, thank you for the unique thread that you are weaving into the larger world. We need you. Here's the show. So welcome. Um, I was hoping that just for the, the uninitiated listener, um, that you too, before we kind of dive into the work of this particular offering, this play that you um, are mounting and sharing with our local community, I was wondering if you could just give us a little bit of backstory. Like what do your nine to fives look like and how has that work that you do in your day-to-day brought you to, um, is, there, is there a direct relationship between your, your nine-to-five work and the work of this play? Um, and what's the relationship there? I would just love to hear a little bit of that, that backstory. I'm Vanessa, and um, I'm currently the program coordinator for the Raven Project, um, which is a street outreach program and a drop-in center for youth under the ages of 21. Um, And what we do is we connect them to different resources in the community with the ultimate goal for many of them being um, long-term stable housing. But we do all kinds of stuff from little things to um, providing a space where they can take a shower, wash their clothes, eat a hot meal, um, and then bigger things like, um, like I said, mentioning connecting them to long-term housing and um, helping them secure food resources in the community. But in terms of um, connecting the play to the work that I do, um, we definitely serve um, a lot of folks that have been in the the juvenile justice system. Um, prior to this, I was working with adults in the Humboldt County Correctional Facility, and I was one woman for 400 people, um, wow. which is pretty pretty exhausting, pretty incredible. Now I'm like one woman for I'd say we get about 15 kids a day, so that's a lot more manageable. Um, and everybody has different needs, but a lot of our youth, um, we see a lot of kids that are um, being sex trafficked. Um, that's a really common thing. And sometimes our kids will end up in the system for crimes relating to that. And then a lot of our kids struggle with substance abuse. And I think the correlation for me, like a pretty obvious one, is the play talks a lot about trauma and trauma being one of the leading factors that led them to their incarceration. And I know that the clients that I'm serving now um, definitely can identify with that theme. And um, yeah, that would be some of the first things that I would say. 
And then Katerina, do you feel like there's a, a, a definitive link between the work that you do out in the world and the, and the relationship and, and the draw you have to the work of this, this play or. No, I think the work that I'm doing right now um, is definitely interconnected. And um, I'd say for the most part, um, my work and my free time often has um, intersections between uh, justice and advocacy. Um, I work for St. Joseph Hospital in their philanthropic department called the Community Benefit Department. Um, I supervise two uh, Spanish-speaking programs, Healthy Kids Humboldt and Paso a Paso, um, where we uh, do uh, pregnancy-related, infant and maternal mental health-related outreach to disadvantaged um, Spanish-speaking populations of all spectrums of documentation. Um, for my master's degree, I have an MS in criminal justice, and I specialized in victim advocacy for historically oppressed and vulnerable populations. And um, the way in which I would certainly link my nine to five work with this play is really um, in the victim advocacy context and um, remembering that as victim advocates, we're not um, giving voice to the voiceless, but we're amplifying the voices of those who are often ashamed, afraid, and angry by the ways in which they have been victimized. Um, I too have an interest in re-entry, but um, I have a specific interest in women's re-entry uh, programs into our communities uh, because women have significant additional barriers um, entering into the community. And we often uh, think of work and life in the context of uh, male um, previously incarcerated persons, um, and we rarely shift the dialogue to what it looks like for women entering back into society who have uh, been parenting behind bars, who have additional employment barriers. So I was very excited to take on this play in a volunteer capacity because I really feel like it shares a lot of stories that are being told, but aren't uh, being received as well as they could be. There's so much richness. Um, and I wrote down about like 27 questions in between the two of you responding. I was like, then there's another thing we need to unpack and another thing. So um, thank you for that, that great, rich um, introduction just to both of your, your background and what, what brings you to this. Um, well, let's shift gears just for a moment. So let's talk a little bit about the work of the play. This is, um, it's another Evensler work, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so how did you come across it? What is the, you know, what is, what can we expect um, as potential audience members? And what is some of the, the takeaways? What do you, what do you love about this work? And um, how, how has it been just being a part of it? Oh man, that's a big one. So yeah. um, I came, yeah, I came across the play. This is the second time I've had the honor of directing it in our community. And um, I think I did it in 2013. The play was written in 2011. This is the fifth Evensler play that I've directed. And I've always been really drawn to the work of V-Day and the campaign of V-Day just because I really believe that V-Day is a catalyst to um, ending violence against women and girls across the globe. And I just was immediately drawn to this play also for, you know, um, it being women's voices, formerly and currently incarcerated women. <clears throat> so I was really excited about that. Um, so, gosh, for me, um, my, so my mom was, um, incarcerated when I was a kid and um, I you know when you're a kid you just have this different lens of the world and um, I knew that it was really difficult for my mom to come back into our community after she was incarcerated but 
I didn't really know the depth of how difficult it was. And um, Katerina mentions, you know, some of the things that women have to face, but there's so much and there's so much in this play. Um, the play kind of takes you through, we added some things. We start the playoff talking about this concept of the too much woman, which um, I think most women can identify with, you know, being told you're too much, your feelings are too much, your energy is too much, um, your body, the space you occupy is too much. So um, we perform that piece in the beginning and the play to me in, in many regards is dedicated to that too much woman and the women that are um, the voices that we're helping amplify in the play, these stories are women that we're also, I'm sure, told were too much. Um, so the play kind of starts off with that. It goes into um, what it's like to be inside a little bit, um, the trauma from being inside, the um, experiences that the women face in terms of being taken advantage of, the general uh, violence that they experience in particular from the male guards, and that perspective, but I think why I love the play so much is um, it really addresses just how these women got there. It's really more of a focus on their stories pre-incarceration, and I think um, that's really what draws me in. And um, I think so often people are defined by their crimes, and when they're released back into the community, um, they're either label the monster or they're invisible. They're invisible because they're not able to be, um, they can't access services in the same way that they could before um, in terms of, you know, benefits from Department of Health and Human Services or in terms of housing benefits. Um, for some folks, it's their voting rights, but all of these things are, are really significant. And I just think that it's not talked about enough in our community, especially considering the fact that it's like one in five women. It's like the same statistic of women that will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime. I was just um, writing our program today and doing some research and something that struck out to me. And then I want Katarina to take the mic and talk is um, I read that 86% of women in prison were sexually and physically abused prior to their incarceration. And that came out from the Vera Institute of Justice in 2017. And I think, I really think that's the heart of this play is trying to understand these women and how it led to this versus looking at them as, like I said, as monsters, um, as people that are just now defined by their crime. And almost every story in the play, every character is there just about, at least the assumption is made for um, having abused their abuser. Um, I think that's that's pretty prevalent in the play. So, yeah. Um, one thing I would like to, to celebrate, because I think it's really important to celebrate these things in um, Humboldt County, California, where we're recording here in Northern California, is um, that this play has two women of color in it and uh, that's important um and i've i've thought a lot about that i am a woman of color um i identify as a multi-ethnic woman of color and um i think there's a lot of feeling of hopelessness about how do we break barriers how do we work across lines and create more diversity in our community projects. And I've thought about how Vanessa approached me um, as a woman of color, but also as a community member. And it was incredibly equitable. And it wasn't about me being a brown person filling a box. It was about me being a community member that had a lot of background and context that would, I hope, add to the spirit of the play. And I just want to thank you, Vanessa, for, for doing the work that it takes um, to, to reach out and work with um, women of different backgrounds and not being afraid to do that work. So I, I really wanted to take a moment and celebrate that. 
Oh, thank you for saying that. I, I just look at you as like such an honorable woman in the community and I just adore you and who you are and the energy that you have. And I was like, oh my God, I want to get to know her more. <laughs> like I should see if she'd want to do this play with me. <laughs> awesome. She did this interview with um, my friend Stacy and I, who's also a woman of color. She's incredible. I tried to get her to do the play, but she's so busy. Um but um, I, we did this interview together for KHSU and Katerina was just, she just asked such great questions and she's so present and she's such a good listener and I just really liked her energy. And the other woman that we have in the play is an incredible actress and I would be a fool not to ask her to be in the play. She majored in acting at HSU. She's like done so many different projects in the community and she'll just anybody that comes to see the play will be blown away by her and her name is Shirley she's amazing amazing but but also I mean everyone's amazing I should say too that last this last Sunday yesterday feels like a lifetime ago Katarina did her piece and blew everybody out of the water Amy she was like she brought us all to tears she like reminded us as to why it was so important you know for us to be there I think that's it's an important piece of it too, you know, because in just in my mind, I'm, I'm seeing these two little threads combine. Um, I had a wonderful woman on last week, um, Desiree Attaway, and we talked. We dipped very briefly into this, this kind of this notion of tokenism, right? Where you invite someone in just because you're kind of trying to fill a, like you say, Katerina, you know, a diversity quota, or you know, fill a a, a spot or a box. And it's a very different thing from, you know, truly seeing to the the asset that someone is and, you know, their background there is is a piece of it, but it's also, you know, the, the roles that they play within their community, their articulation, their experiences, their viewpoints. Um, and it seems like that to me is tied directly to this work of, you know, re of, you know, of telling a woman's backstory pre-incarceration, you know, getting us to help us understand her um, before she was defined by an orange jumpsuit, you know, before she became defined by um, this, this real, this role um, that we've pegged her in within society. Um, what, how do you feel? I guess just, I always struggle. I, I feel like art has this poten- tremendous potential to, to help us shift our perspective, shift our limited viewpoints, and can be a catalyst for um, tremendous social change and impact. But I also feel sometimes like it can be a little maybe it's not a powerful enough tool. What have you witnessed inside of this work? Um, and, and I guess I'll just say within the communities that you're a part of and just with even in the cast, what are some of the shifts that you witness just in mounting this production, in saying these words and performing these pieces and being a part of this project? What kinds of transformations are you witnessing and what kinds of transformations are you hoping that this will continue to percolate and spread out in the the local community and beyond? Um, I would say that, you know, Katerina brought up a good point that in our, in our cast, you know, there are two women that are um, women of color. And I think, you know, it's different when we, when I did this play before a few years ago or whatever it was, 2013, it feels like a few years ago. Um, we had two women in the play as well that define themselves as women of color, but it was different. Like now I feel like our, in our time and our political climate with our president and the different things that are going on with our community, with the women's March, with all kinds of things that, um, we're, you know, needing to readdress the same issues again and again. And I feel like for me, it's been really powerful to have Katerina and Shelly um, call us out as a, as a group of uh, everybody else I would, I think, defines themselves as, as women that are white women. So I wouldn't, I don't know if calling out is the right term, but like they're very, um, they remind us, you know, they're very honest with us. Like, 
I think there's been some shifts within our cast about being sensitive um, to people and their backgrounds and the things that they've experienced. But um, I also think in terms of the broader work that it's so important that we honor that women of color are the women that are making up our criminal justice systems, like period, in particular, they stand out and women in general are the fastest growing prison population today. So I think um, that's been something that's really stood out for me in this experience. And like, um, I don't know, it just reminds me of the importance of talking about our incarcerated population, the way that we talk about them. We had this whole conversation about language. And one of the pieces we say, um, we talk about bad men. That's what one of the pieces is called. And we had this conversation about, um, well, is it just men or is it men and women? Is it anybody, you know, what, however someone defines themselves. So we've had these really great conversations about language um, that have come about. I don't know, Katarina, do you want to speak to that? I feel like I'm not even doing it any justice. So sure. I think um, to build upon language, it's really important. Something that comes to mind with me um, with this play in particular is the discourse surrounding incarcerated citizens and incarcerated non-citizens. And what does that incarceration profile look like when you can um, speak the language, navigate the systems, and even have um, limited resources on the outside, but still um, feel comfortable with your, you know, bill of rights and things like that. And um, as we do this play and um, we look at undocumented women who are being incarcerated simply for being refugees, um, that really changes the conversation significantly. One of the lines in the play is any one of us can end up here. And um, last year, I did a spoken word performance with Jody Domino called Momologues, and um, the piece that I read in it was titled Wade in the Water. And I talked about how um, after I'd had this beautiful home birth, um, as I was holding my baby, every part of my DNA and genetics was shouting and screaming, when are they going to take my baby and, and sell her? Um, because I have so much um, transgenerational and historical trauma embedded in those epigenetics. And so for me, when I think about this play, I think along those same lines of what it meant for my ancestors to travel thousands of miles to freedom and to cross a boundary only to be have your child that you walked and carried and held all those long miles following that drinking gourd north to freedom and then to cross that boundary into freedom and have your child ripped away from you a place where you don't know anything have no language have no rights and be placed behind bars and i think about when, when I think about that title, any one of us, I really hope that um, when we have this talk back and when we're talking about women incarcerated, we really focus on undocumented or questionably documented women and families and what the portrait of parenting behind bars in those circumstances really looks like. So can can you speak to that? What what does that do? You, do you feel like you have a better insight either from the the work that the both of you do or from the work of this play of what that whole parenting behind bars does look like? Do you feel like this this piece or the insights that you both have? Because um, I think it's one of those things we you know we can look at the horrors happening down at the border. Um, Mm -hmm. but I think it's one of those things. I think we, one thing that, you know, so one of my hopes is that I, I feel like the way we receive information in this day and age, right. Is it's, there's something about receiving information digitally that I don't even know that it lands, right? Because it's like, we can read Mm -hmm. one more New York Times article, we can read one more headline, we can, you know, see one more horrific thing happening in our, you know, our social media feed or whatever. And I think we just have just enough time to take it in, but not even necessarily react properly, assimilate or digest it and definitely not respond to it. Because I think most of the time, 
um, we're operating in just like a very, you know, kind of just keep moving, not, not necessarily a surface level, but we're, we're not letting things aren't landing right into the way mm-hmm. they need to, for us to really feel impacted and, and to, and to fight back. Right. So mm-hmm. what do you feel like, what, what are the things that, are, I guess so. I want to just go back to yeah. It's like my maybe my hope is that you know being in a space where you're hearing these stories, right? You're hearing these words. You're hearing these these accounts of true life happenings, true life horrors um, from from women that have been traumatized in their own lives, but also like you said, Katerina, you know how hold for many of them decades and generations, you know, of trauma in their, in their DNA. And what, what, I guess, what is the, what is your feel for that? Do you feel like this is a way for us to get past our, our numbness as a culture is to sit in a room and, and hear these stories in real time in an analog person to person way? Um, do, do we receive yeah. them differently than if we're just reading headlines? I'd say so. I mean, God, I'd hope so, because we put so much heart and energy into this play. They better get more out of it than, than, than reading a Facebook headline. Um, I think, I think, I yeah, they, they should and they better. <laughs> um, and I would say that it takes real courage to sit through and, and allow a story to like, pass through you or sit with you and honor someone's voice and their experience. I mean, half the time for me, I know when I read those stories online, I read half of it, it, you know. So for anybody that comes to the play, I commend you for sitting with us through these stories. Um, That really means a lot to us um, in terms of honoring this woman and honoring the work that they have to share with us. And I, going back to what you asked us earlier about um, in regards to art, you know, and art forms like being a way to, you know, um, provide, uh, I don't know what terms you said, but like activism or like art as activism. And I think that's everything. And that's what this claim is all about. And I mean, a perfect example that I have is that our our sheriff from Humboldt County said that him and his wife will be attending this play, which terrifies me because the play is so intense and there's pieces in it that directly talk about abuse within uh, a jail or a prison system. I'm not at all saying that happens in Humboldt County Correctional Facility, but that's painful to look at, you know, as a caring individual in our community, but also as someone who maybe stands on the side of law enforcement. So I, anybody that comes, and like I said, in particular for someone like the sheriff, if you're going to sit with us through this, Thank you. And hopefully at the end of that, I will create, um, I'm not necessarily expecting like some crazy shift in policy or anything, but an emotional shift or um, deeper compassion um, is all I'm really hoping for out of this is just our community to have accountability when it comes to meeting people that are being released from our own correctional facility or from prisons across the world to meet them with love and compassion because once they've been sentenced and they've done their time, they've done their time. They've done their time. And we know for women or women of color in particular, they do far more than their time. You know, they do far longer. And then when they get back into our community, they're still doing time because we're still judging them. So I just hope that we as a community can come together and support them and welcome them with open arms and not make it so difficult for them to find employment, not make it so hard for them to find a house. It's already hard enough for them to be reunited with their children. I mean, I experienced that with my mother. I wanted nothing to do with her when she got out. I was so embarrassed by who she was and what she did. Like, I wouldn't talk to her on the phone. I didn't go to visit her. I was so angry and so embarrassed because I was raised in small town McKinleyville where going into a grocery store, I could hear somebody whispering about me. I didn't want to go into a store with my mom and hear them whisper about me and my mom and my mom's alcoholism and drug issues. Like, I didn't want that on me. So if we can be more welcoming as a community, then job done, you know. This is Katerina. Um, You know, 
I think one thing that's really powerful about this project is that Vanessa is not creating a safe space for the audience. She's creating a brave space where they have to come in and be brave um, when they confront and they're consenting to confront these really uncomfortable issues. And um, some of those uncomfortable issues are really just our overt biases uh, surrounding incarcerated persons, right? Um, we want a victim blame, of course. Um, absolutely. That's the easiest way to, to treat someone in, in prison. That, that way we can kind of rationalize and forget. Um, but we also want justice for victims, right? So people struggle with that because, um, and, and Vanessa's piece really talks about this, um, all of the conflicting factors that happen. Um, in Vanessa's piece, the woman she reads is, is, is guilty. She admits it. She doesn't say what she did, um, but she's guilty. Um, and she served her time and she's about to, she's about to be free. And victims, families, when they confront re-entry, are not usually super happy um, that the person that deeply scarred and ripped their family apart uh, is going to come back into society. And, and they don't believe that they've paid their debts. And we do see high recidivism rates um, of people returning uh, to incarceration. And so people feel frustrated. Um, and so it becomes easy to dehumanize. And so I think it's important that we think about what is, what is restorative, what is healing, and how can we be accountable to those little girls like Vanessa in McKinleyville, California, um, who are obviously brilliant and have so much potential and have the ability to change the world. What what good does it do to victim blame and uh, seek repeated justice from her mom? How can we instead invest in those Vanessa's and those families of Vanessa's so that when they're coming back into our community, they're not stigmatized and that little girl doesn't have to be embarrassed in the grocery store, but that we can create that accountability that Vanessa has talked about where we can truly rehab, rehabilitate those who were incarcerated, but also rehabilitate the ways in which we view incarcerated persons and their families so that we can come to a common understanding about the things that seem so polarizing at first. And I, I hope that we can ask our audience to be brave and think about those issues in this space and um, work to want to want to change their community so we can have a more uh, holistic future. I'm just, I'm struck by the, the languaging of, of rehabilitation. Um, so I was raised in a very, um, you know, a, a pretty, privileged, you know, white middle-class background, right? You know, where I was given kind of that standard line, um, that most privileged, you know, um, protected, uh, safeguarded children were given, right? That, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're incarcerated, it's because you did something bad, right? And in, in, in a lot of that same languaging, right? It's like you, um, are there to pay your debt to society or there to be rehabilitated. And it, it's only been through, um, you know, years of my own learning and unlearning to, to peel back the layers of that and to actually, you know, it's like, look at, um, just some of the systemic injustices written into our legal code, um, it's, it's kind of horrifying, you know, when we look at like, you know, say the, the deep South in this country and how basically they've managed to keep the plantation system kind of intact through the way that the, the prisons are set up. Right. Um, and just even this notion of rehabilitation, 
um, because we know, like you said, Katarina, you know, there's this high recidivism rate, you know, it's like if you were to look at it, you know, take the broad view and say, you know, is, is that actually what we are doing here? You know, are we giving people the opportunity to better themselves to, you know, uh, is, is that actually what this system is set up no. to do? <laughs> right. No! Um, funny, it's like, it's called a correctional facility, but it's a joke. I mean, to have one person working with 400 people right there shows you that is not something we value as a society, as a community. And the sad thing is, is that here's the reality. We lock a woman up in a cell or we lock a man up in a cell, little cell. They come out and they're our neighbors. And especially if you think about the fact that folks that are in solitary confinement, actually tomorrow I have a friend that will get out. 17 years in solitary tomorrow gets out within a box. How healthy is that? Not only for him, but for me as a community member, why not introduce him to things that would better him? Why not support him in his efforts to heal some of his childhood traumas? I mean, really, that's the smart thing to do as a community is invest and those folks that have been sitting in boxes for 17 years. It's as simple as that. It's incredibly dangerous to release them back into a community where they have no support. And for this guy in particular, he's going down to LA and he's going to be staying in a homeless shelter. A homeless shelter. He'll go from living in a box at Pelican Bay to a homeless shelter. How successful do you think he's going to be? You know? <laughs> it's just like it's ridiculous. So if we really did like value our like our neighbor or brothers and our sisters, then we wouldn't put them in situations like that. And granted, somebody on the other side could argue like, you know, that person um, committed a crime against my loved one. But really, at the end of the day, I mean, Katarina has this line and in, in any one of us in our final piece. What is it, Katarina, about an eye for an eye? Right. Right. Exactly. It's yeah. It's a retributive process. We have to take a longer view at the way in which we look at corrections and rehabilitation for people that have had structuralized and ongoing physical, sexualized, emotional, and addiction trauma from the time they were in utero at, for mm -hmm. some people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's really what the play highlights. I mean, that's the heart of the play to me. <sighs> I, I have moments where I think the the task of our age is to to learn to live and and thrive and be and create amongst the ashes. I, I truly feel like, yeah, we're we're in, we're living in death medicine times. You know, there's so many so many broken systems and so much brokenness as a result of those systems. And and our task is really to to look to sift through the ashes and to find, like you say, you know those those pieces of resurrection and how we resurrect one another. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. Thank you. Um, yeah. So what, what just, I guess, you know, and there's, there's so many different pieces of this um, that, you know, I feel like we could really dive into one, one thing for me that I know has been valuable in my own life as I, as I continue to get educated and unlearn a lot of the untruths that I was raised with. Um, and it's like after the initial heartbreak of actually peeling mm -hmm. back the veil, so to speak, and seeing, you know, here's the lie I was told and here's the reality of the situation. Um, one thing that I've found, you know, after, after the, well, after the, the righteous anger and indignation, indignation dies down a little <laughs> to kind of a, a low hum instead of just a full fledged, you know, full throttle <laughs> rage I found that it's been particularly useful because then I can begin this analysis of like, okay, here's what's not working. Here's, here's the proposal and here's how it's completely broken. And seeing what's broken gives me the ability to chart something different. This, this is what's not working. And I, so I can create a vision for what could work. Do you feel like this this work, the work that you do in your your you know your day jobs and the work that you do with your communities and the work of this play, um, 
do you feel like it has helped feed a vision of what we could be doing as a culture, how we could be dealing with these, you know, these traumatized incarcerated populations? What if do you, what, yeah, what is, I guess that's what I want to know. What is your vision? Um, since I, w- I would imagine you more than, you know, most people, the two of you have a, a very clear close up lens of what is broken about our current system. Um, do you feel like you've been able to develop a vision of, of a, a, an alternative way of moving forward that could work um, much better? Amy, if you don't mind, I'd like to start answering. This is Katerina. Yeah. Um, one of the things that the play really highlights is um, women who are inca- incarcerated for um, fighting back, self-defense. Um, and domestic violence uh, laws and advocacy vary uh, from state to state. They're all over the place. And what happens is a lot of intimate partner violence and domestic violence gets um, kicked into family court. It gets into a civil matter. So unless the DA takes the charges, it becomes um, an interpersonal dispute between two people. And often children are involved. So that makes it a civil matter. Um, One of the ways we can keep people out of jail for defending themselves against their abusers is through domestic violence courts. They're incredibly successful where they've taken off and it allows for a hybrid of a civil and criminal approach to um, looking at both batterer intervention, mutual combat, and uh, victim advocacy. For example, um, in California right now, Um, As long as an abuser doesn't abuse the children, um, he or she, the abuser, um, the ab is what we say in the kind of DV world, the ab will still be allowed to get 50% of custody. And imagine sending your child to the home of someone who violently, physically, and sexually abused you for likely years. Um, there comes a point, and this is what seems to have happened to our women in this story, although for most of the time we don't really know, where, where they've, they've obviously retaliated. They had enough. I have a line in my, one of my pieces where I said, I had enough and I fought back. Um, and what happens is we have millions of women in jail for years or life for um, fighting back and sometimes killing their abusers. And this has to stop. Um, And so we need to find ways to figure out how intimate partner violence can be addressed successfully with both abuser and victim and um, not keep that conversation gendered or racialized, but recognize that intimate partner violence has very real consequences across a spectrum of race and class and gender, and that it's critically important that victims, survivors, and abusers, especially those who have families, get holistic wraparound services in order to heal and move forward so that we don't have victims incarcerated. I want to just ask, and, and Vanessa, if you have something to add, I'd love to love to hold space for that as well. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking about this, this breakdown, right? We know that for, you know, every time you put a nugget of truth, you know, something powerful and potent, like you're putting out into the world with this play, um, we know that there's just, there's a, I'll say it's, I'll say it in these, you know, really gross <laughs> terms of there's kind of a conversion rate, right? There's going to be a certain percentage of the population that's just like, eh, that's not for me. They don't have the bandwidth, they don't have the time, or they're too invested in the current um, dominant narrative and or system as it is, you know, like maybe they, you know, work for the prison system, who knows, you know, maybe they're, they're too, they're not going to have ears and eyes to receive the work that you're doing. And then there's another percentage of the population that will be intrigued and interested, right? And maybe they'll even come and they'll partake and they'll be touched by it. 
And then there's this even smaller percentage, right, of people that are going to come and the space that you're holding, the words and the stories that you are sharing are going to crack something open in them, right? And I would imagine that that is really that's the the tiny little portion right that you're you're speaking to you're working with what would you what is your greatest hope for that little sliver of the population those people that have ears to hear eyes to see and are going to be touched and impacted by the stories that you're telling and want to go back out into the world and do something with this 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 spark that you're leaving us with. Where would you tell us to start? Where do we, you know, who aren't writing the laws, who aren't, um, you know, shifting the policies? Where would you have us take that spark um, once we've been touched by these stories? Where where would you have us go back out into the world to um, to move with this? I was just working on this today because we've talked a lot about this as the cast. We don't want anyone to leave and feel like they can't do anything. Cause I think that's, that's a pretty awful feeling. I mean, Therese, my good friend and I have done poetry for years and we would talk about that a lot. You know, we share some pretty intense things from like the, the depths of who we are and we don't want anyone to feel like they're leaving in the sense of like despair. So um, I have actually, written a few things um, in terms of things that people can do. And some of the most basic things are, like I mentioned earlier, providing compassion and support for people who are returning home from incarceration. Um, It's incredibly critical that people have lots of support. If someone's a homeowner in the community or an employer, perhaps they consider employing someone or providing them with housing. Those two things are critical to someone being successful when they're reintegrating um, after being incarcerated. Um, Compassion though is key too, you know, like making sure that you understand that it's important to be open-minded, that not everyone can be defined by something that they did. As I mentioned earlier, everyone's capable of change. That's key. Coming to that with an open heart. Um, Another thing that people can do, I mean, for folks that are on the inside is become a pen pal to someone who's currently incarcerated. Um, There's a website called writeaprisoner.com. And they're a great website because they're really, they provide up-to-date information in terms of where folks are, um, important resources, and if you were to become a pen pal, and that was something I did right off the bat when I went to HSU, I was a pen pal to someone for seven years. I would send them um, educational materials, I would just be an ear for them, and it was such um, a blessing for me and really reminded me of Um, how lucky I am to be free, truly. Um, Other things that people can do are vote, huge vote. Um, You know, I think people don't put enough energy and emphasis on the importance of not only our elected officials, but who our judges are. I mean, our judges, the quality of justice in our community depends on who our judges are. So that's critical. So there are a lot of things that people can do right off the bat after they see the play. Um, and, and you know, like if, if not any of those things and someone just comes to listen and, and comes with an open heart, then I hope that they feel either some compassion or they themselves are allowed some healing, you know, if it brings up things for them and it, it, it probably will. So that would be what I would say. Thank you. Thank you for that. Katerina, yeah, if you have if you have action points or anything that just as far as, you know, takeaways, I, I think just it it's such a key thing, I feel like, in in the moment in history that we're living in, because at a moment where we have access to so much information, um, I feel like paralysis is is in, in many segments of our population the the result um so thank you yeah for just that 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 you know giving us you know here's and here are some action points for actually making this shift and change out in the world well i want to go ahead and just um yeah what are the what are the give us some some dates where and when can we come watch this unfold 
So it's March 23rd, 24th at the Sanctuary in Arcata. Um, and tickets are available for all the shows at Wild Berries Marketplace. Um, and those performances, the 23rd is at 7 o'clock, and then the 24th is at 5 o'clock. Um, and then we have a show at the Siren Song Tavern on April 5th. And then we have our last show at the Eureka Women's Club on April 19th. Um, the show on the 19th, we have a dinner that goes along with the performance. The actual play will be at 7, but the dinner will be at 6. Um, the whole play is going to, um, the funds are going towards starting a nonprofit in our community um, that supports reintegration. Um, right now, we're still working out a name. I'm thinking it's going to be the Humboldt County Reentry Initiative. Katarina had a really good name. I'm open to names. That's important. It's forever. But um, that's what the funds are going towards. So we're really excited about that and how that'll come along. It's just the beginning of a, a beautiful journey of supporting these folks in our community because um, currently, there is support in terms of our treatment centers on a local level, but in terms of an actual place that's specifically designed to people that have been incarcerated, there's nothing that exists like that. And um, a long-term vision of ours would be like peer support, people that have been incarcerated that are actually mentoring and supporting other people, um, tattoo removal. We've got lots of really, really good ideas. So this play is like a kickoff to that. So, yeah, all tickets are at Wildberries, and anybody that wants to come, um, we appreciate that. And it doesn't sound like something someone may want to come to, and they just want to support the play and the project and want to donate, um, they can check out our Facebook page. It's the Humboldt Reentry, Humboldt County Reentry Initiative. Um, they could donate funds, which could go towards sending someone else to the play. Um, we've given 12 tickets to Humboldt County Recovery Center. 12 tickets to Crossroads. Those are both treatment programs where uh, people that have been incarcerated will be attending, but we definitely want to be able to have lots of people that have been incarcerated there. Um, there's a woman named Rosalind Smith who was incarcerated. She was arrested at 17. She's now in her 38th year in prison, serving a sentence of 50 to life. And she wrote something um, that she released to V-Day and the organizers of um, V-Day. And I, I thought I would share it because I think it, it really speaks to the heart of the play. She says, did you see no potential in me? You noted my high IQ, how articulate I was, how mature. I'd run away from home because I refused to let my mother keep hurting me. You put me in a home for bad kids. My roommate wasn't even sane. I left there too. So you put me in a group home. You call that help? No matter how I tried to tell, no one got it. So then you sentenced me, said no hope for re rehabilitation, said I'm as good as dead, just like my mother. Kicks, flights of stairs, words that made me flinch. Well, you were both wrong. I have a life. I have a beautiful daughter a college education. I teach parenting skills. I made a difference in people's lives. You never gave me a chance, so I made my own. My poverty, skin color, background, past, who at age 17 can't change, won't grow. You robbed me of my youth, of my belief in justice. But from the graveyard, the barbed wire, the cinder block, I'm resurrected. I'm somebody.